forever. Dog. Just between us. Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and my bangs are too long right now. Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I love a granola bar. Really? Yeah, I do. I need I need food on the go. I need to be moving. I need to be grooving. My issue is all the granola bars that have a good amount of protein so that they'll actually fill me up, I don't like. I only like the granola bars that have like no protein in them. I don't understand. If you're a company that makes granola bars, why so crumbly? Why so many? Why? Why when you open it, it's like it's like opening a glitter bomb. Like what? Why crumbs? Well, then there's all those other ones that are more mushy, like a Cliff Bar or a Luna Bar. Not really. Okay, I just like I like my food on the go. I like little applesauce packets. I like bananas. I like. Am I going anywhere? Probably not. Do I yeah, want like, the where food, are you going? Do I want the food to be handheld and ready to go? Do I want to be like in a in a show like a lawyer, like going down my, you know, going down the hallway, like moving and grooving and trying to get to court, shoving, you know, like in the rom-com where she's like shoving like little food in her mouth because she's so busy? Yeah. I don't like that at all. I like to really make <laughs> <laughs> I like to milk my food moments. Where I'm sitting, I'm either watching TV, I'm reading mm. my Kindle. It's like a real time Meditative. for me to appreciate my food and enjoy it. Um, and when I time. when I eat food in a rush, I feel like it's a waste. Interesting. That's why we're just such an odd couple. I know we're so different. <laughs> we're just so different. And if this is your first time listening to show, that's the only way we're different. There's no <laughs> other differences. We are exactly the same. Oh, we just did a meet and greet thing and somebody said that my they like my laugh. Do I have a particularly distinctive laugh? I think you have um like a little bit of a contagious laugh where like you'll, you know, it it feels like you mean it. <laughs> I guess like well, yeah, I guess what well, one my voice sounds I'm on testosterone and my voice sounds in like my voice is so scratchy. Scratchy, mm. low, but then someone was like, "Well, think about like puberty right like all the boys in puberty they sounded high-pitched and scratchy and I was like oh I guess I haven't noticed any changes to your voice and is that just a problem I have that I don't understand sounds very well no I think you just hear me all the time but Melissa nodded that I don't understand sounds my voice sounds different right (laughs) yeah it is it's it kind of cracks sometimes it's scratchy it sounds like you kind of have a cold yeah well I'll be in this phase for a while but I, I have to listen to the differences in your voice. So right. it stands out to me. The indignity huh. of humanity is just having this happen publicly in front of everyone. But I do sound different than like earlier episodes for sure. But I also can't like sing the same, like the same register, you know, like if I'm singing along to the to Spotify or something. So because this is 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 going on, I think my laugh sounds scratchier. And like, it's more of like, oh. a <laughs> I don't think so. I think you just kind of have an explosive laugh where it like comes in strong. And I think that that's fun. Thank you. Where I have a lot of like nervous laughter. Yeah. Space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine just like bursts out of me, like as if a, a, mm-hmm. an, a demon has been exercised. Uh, and mine is just a, a, a nervous hum always in the background. Yeah. Anyway, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. And let me know, speaking of honesty, if you're a listener, let me know if my voice sounds different. I'm sure it does. And let me know how annoying my laugh is on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> We've got a really great episode for everybody this week. We're going to be asking Haley Yoakum some tough questions about intimate partner violence, um, which is an episode we've wanted to do for a long time. So trigger warning on that. And later we'll be talking all about our, our small business ideas and if we have any. Shark Tank. Yeah, it'll be Shark Tank JBU edition. Oh, good. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Glass cuttlefish from Venice, Italy. Beautiful. Yes, they gave themselves um, their own fake name, which we always love and appreciate. And they told us... What is a glass cuttlefish? I don't know. Let me look it up. But they told us where they're from specifically in Italy, which I also like. All right. So glass cuttlefish says, Dear Allison and Gabe and Melissa, I love your podcast and I've been following you for a long time. I apologize if there are any spelling or grammar errors. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. My question is, should I continue to write a book, even if I'm nobody, and probably it will never be published? It feels like I'm wasting my time, and it makes me feel even more like a failure. For background, I'm a marine biologist who is not feeling good at her job and is thinking about leaving the research world, and this makes me feel like a failure. My dream would be to become a writer, but I think it will be impossible. I have no basic competency, and plus I'm dyslexic. But writing makes me happy and frees my imagination. I've already written three chapters of the book, but I don't know whether to go on. Thanks for everything, Glass Cuttlefish. Ugh, what made you pick this one? Um, It was just like intriguing and felt a little different than what we normally pick. But I mean, one of the things I think is so hard is like, and I've talked about this like on on socials, is like the, the need for anything that gives us joy to also be able to make us money or be seen as successful outside of the fact that it just gives us joy. And so it's like intriguing to me that this person enjoys the process of writing, which I got to say as a writer is not something that I really enjoy. (laughs) So if that is something that you like, and that gives you like satisfaction, I think a way around these feelings of judgment and, and failure is to change what your objective is with your writing. Um, And if you're writing for yourself, and even if you're writing for the idea that like, maybe 10 people will read it one day, or maybe like you will self publish something and some people will find it and enjoy it instead of, oh, if I write this thing that it has to, it has to financially support me, it has to be objectively successful, it has to be my next career. I think adding all of that onto this thing that you genuinely enjoy, of course, is going to take away the magic of it and also make it like much more confusing as to what to do next. I absolutely think you should continue writing the book. Also, you you mentioned like I have no basic competency and plus I'm just dyslexic. I, it doesn't matter. Like you can get, you can, you can go back and edit it later. Nobody who's writing is writing perfectly. 
Um, I understand like feeling self-conscious about your writing, but no, nobody's pumping out a perfect first draft. Everyone goes back and edits. Everyone goes back and looks at things and changes them. Basic competency, I will say like, has it helped for me to take classes in writing? Sure. Was it 100% necessary? Not really. Like, I don't know what you mean by competency, but if you're thinking of being a writer or writing a book as being something that you have to like have some kind of degree in or some kind of, I, I often think it's people who read a lot of books are the ones who know how to write, how to best write books. Like you can study writing, but if you don't read or if you don't like enjoy listening to books or whatever it is, taking in books, I think it it would be much harder to write something because I sometimes think people get really into like, I have to learn everything about writing, but they're not consuming what is already published or what is already written or what is already out there. That can teach you so much more than like any sort of, you know, idea that you have of competency. I will say, if you have that spark inside you that is inspiration and that makes you want to write, you've already written three chapters, that's like 90% of the battle, truly. Like in terms of writing, like feeling inspired and wanting to get get it out there and like feeling like you have the motivation to do it is, I truly think like 80% of being a writer. And I definitely don't think that you need formal schooling of any kind to be a great writer. There's also a lot of like great books out there about writing. But it might be fun for you to take a writing mm-hmm. class and and to join a writer's group and to sort of like have writing be just like a bigger part mm-hmm. of your life and maybe not as solitary. Mm-hmm. And then you might get some great encouragement. You might realize like, oh, what I'm working on is wonderful and people do want to see the rest of this story. And that can kind of that kind of validation can kind of help in those moments of self-doubt. And also you can learn from other people, like reading other people's work, seeing how other people's work changes, I think is like a really great way to model. I think it's also really fun to give thoughts and critiques on other people's work. I think it makes you think a lot about story and what kind of stories you're actually drawn Mm to. Like allowing yourself to like potentially like look into a class without putting the pressure on yourself of, and I must leave this class with this thing completed and it must be marketable and sellable and all of those things. And I must quit my job as a marine biologist. It also seems like two things are happening, right? Like you're discovering and spending time with this passion that is writing. And then you're also not feeling fulfilled with your job. And so it can feel like, oh, well, then is that step Then I give up this job to be a full-time writer? And that is a really scary thing because it's really hard to support yourself as a writer. And so I think like allowing yourself to say, I'm going to nurture and spend time on writing. And I'm also going to kind of expand my mind as to like, what else would I want to do? You know, like, are there other jobs that include writing, but it's like copy editing or it's something else that like feels more aligned with what you want to wake up and do every day than your current job. But it's not putting that thing of like, and I must be a successful writer on my own. You know, there's there's a lot of different versions of, of your future that can include writing and can include a more satisfying job, but isn't like, and I jump from A to B, you know, I jump from my current job to being a full-time writer. You're saying it would be impossible for me to be a writer. To be a writer, you just have to be writing. 
you're already a writer. You're already a writer. Also saying like, even if I'm a nobody, like everybody starts somewhere. Like when we started the YouTube channel, nobody's watching it. So I understand where you're coming from, but you're just at the beginning of this journey. I also think that there's a lot of luck too. You know, I think there is sometimes this sense of like, oh, well, if I just do the writing, then the success will follow. And unfortunately, you can be the best writer in the world. And like sometimes people, you just can't get that traction. You just don't get that luck. You're just not in that right place at the right time. For me, that was very much getting hired at BuzzFeed Video in 2014. I mean, when people are like, how did you get your career? I'm like, well, can you go back in time and get hired at the video place for, you know, six, eight months? That's why I think that's why you're right, Allison. I think that they should meet other writers and like get more into like a group and get more meet other people who have published stuff or like, I think, I think toiling in solitude is, is not, is you're right. Like they have to find opportunities. And also like, it's like a cost benefit, right? It's like, if this thing is something that brings you joy, then maybe just doing it Mm -hmm. is enough and self-publishing it is enough and starting, you know, I would really recommend starting like a sub stack. Like anyone can start a sub stack. You can post writing on there. There's certain ways to kind of get new readers, um, like if like some tips and following other sub stacks and whatever. And, and looking at it more as like, I enjoy doing this thing instead of I then need to get better at it. I need to judge myself for it. I need to get a certain level of validation from other people about it. You know, kind of remove that. And instead, just like how wonderful to have discovered something that you like to do. Also, science writing is like, if you have a skill set of marine biology, you can, you can parlay that into writing about that kind of thing. Yeah. Like writing about things that only you can write about is a really important tip, I think. Exactly. But either way, how wonderful to know that you found something you love because not everybody has that. Yeah. If you become, you know, the next E.L. James, let us know. And we'll adapt it into a screenplay. Yes. (laughs) Hopefully that helps. We're so excited for what's to come for you. And if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an interview with Haley Yoakum, so stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Haley Yoakum, a gender-based violence activist, survivor, advocate, and feminist researcher. Her research of gender-based violence prevention and response is directly informed by the survivors she has had the privilege to work with in her seven years of experience as a survivor victim advocate in the context of a rape crisis hotline, a university LGBT center, the criminal and civil legal systems, and nonprofit domestic violence service programs. Hello. Hello. Thank you for writing in and asking us to speak about this on the show. What made you want to to work in this field and like feel that it was so important that you, you know, you wanted to come on the podcast to talk about it? Yeah, so two answers. One is like the answer that I thought before I went to therapy. And then there's the answer that I understood after I went to therapy. So the after therapy answer is that I've just always been a feminist and like immediately drawn to addressing violence whenever I saw it, regardless of not 
always having the words to be like, oh, that's domestic violence or that's feminist violence. So like being a 12 year old and getting in trouble for writing papers about foot binding or like reproductive, like coercion and things like that. But the other part of that is what got me into the field because I used to be a chemist was when I was a sophomore in college, my best friend at the time was sexually assaulted. And that kind of like, it gave me like this sociological imagination to understand that, oh, like all of these things, sexual violence happens constantly. And every single woman that I care about in my life has been sexually assaulted. And the person I was friends with is bi. And then I realized all of every single bi person I'd ever met, and I'm bi as well, was sexually assaulted. So I was like, oh, I don't want to sleep without doing something about this. So I kind of got back on the track that maybe I was meant to at the beginning and like started working in gender-based violence activism. What does your work involve? Yeah. So I actually, I just quit my job, which I'm excited about. It's a good thing. Okay. Uh, So (laughs) I uh, was a victim advocate or survivor advocate. So in each state and federal grants, they'll, um, the Violence Against Women Act, the Victims of Crime Act, and a few others will fund um, survivor advocacy programs. So that's sometimes embedded within court systems. I purposely never took a job that was embedded in the court system because the things those advocates have to deal with is just too much. But it's on a daily basis working with survivors of intimate partner violence who reach out and say like, hey, I'm in a dangerous relationship or I fled a dangerous relationship and XYZ is hitting the fan. Um, I, I need help. And it's a lot of I'm not a therapist or a counselor, but it's really similar to counseling. My mentor was a counselor, a trauma therapist, and it's just involves safety planning every single day, which is a very politically correct way of saying homicide prevention. Mm -hmm. Mm. I've never heard it said that bluntly, but it is it is true. And I'd love to get into the language around yeah, this work, because I think that there's a lot of specificity to the language. I think the language is kind of changing. And so what is even the difference between domestic violence and intimate partner violence? Yeah, so that depends on who you ask. Usually they're used interchangeably. So I just try to like understand what the person is meaning. How I define them is, so domestic violence in a legal way, um, and I don't encourage people to take a legal definition of as something as maybe like the one they should pay attention to. Yeah. But in a legal way, domestic violence is any violence that goes on between household members or family members or like people in the home. So it could involve intimate partner violence, which is in a legal sense, violence between current or former romantic or sexual partners. So it could be ex-spouse, current spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, they friend, partner. But domestic violence could be child abuse, um, elder abuse, roommate abuse. The big difference I make is that with intimate partner violence, what's usually going on is coercive control. And that's where you get into the legal definition of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, which I'll use interchangeably throughout this interview, versus the social service or activist definition, which I'd also say is the correct or the real definition, because the criminal definition is they criminalize different types of acts. So like physical abuse is illegal, depending on who who perpetrates it, it's illegal. So like hitting your partner, technically illegal. But when someone comes in to my office 
and says to me like, Hey, my partner hits me. And I was like, okay, like, let's talk about more about that. And if I find out that what's going on is that the per the abusive person is like enacting a pattern of behavior to control the other person and to like isolate them, make them question their thoughts to control their behavior. That's what I consider intimate partner violence. Uh, So it's that ongoing pattern of behavior where you're trying to exert coercive control over another person. And that's why it's more dangerous than a relationship that's toxic. And maybe sometimes you hit each other or you scream at each other, which is very unfortunate. And, And when it's a toxic relationship, I encourage people to go to couples counseling or to break up and not talk to each other. But with intimate partner violence, the coercive control piece makes it that really terrible harm can occur, such as homicide. There's like been debate around the idea that relationships can be mutually abusive, right? Like we see that with what happened with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial and like this idea that like, oh, both both parties are equally at fault here. And can you kind of speak to why that that's not possible? Yeah. So just to say it out loud, that's like a bunch of horse shit. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Just to like in my technical um, expert opinion, bullshit. So I think there can be toxic relationships. But at the same time, usually when people bring that up is to diminish a survivor who's trying to seek help because there's no such thing as a perfect victim. Because when you're in a relationship where someone has utilized all of these strategies to isolate you or to control you, you have to do things that might not make sense to other people to be okay or to be safe. Like you have to lie sometimes or you might scream at your partner, but it's kind of myth busting of when it's intimate partner violence, it's not mutual abuse. It's one person trying to control another person. It's also asking, okay, a lot of clients will come into my office and say like, well, I'm abusive too. Like I know my partner strangled me and steals my car keys every time I have a really important meeting and purposely makes me late to work. But like I yelled at him or I yelled at them or I like put part of my paycheck in a different bank account that they don't have access to. So I'm abusive too. I was like, okay, well, why are you doing that? Is it to stay safe? Or are you trying to control the other person? Do you think that you're entitled to every thought and your to know every thought in your partner's head? Or is it being safe? And so with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, what we're seeing is what actual intimate partner violence looks like, where the victim, and I want to be clear, is I believe Amber Heard is an intimate partner violence survivor. She's not likable, but because she's like most people, besides being wealthy, she's like a person. Like if I had reported the intimate partner violence I'd experienced, that probably would have been the same result. It would have hopefully been less high profile, but I would not have been a likable victim because if the person who's harming you is also someone you love and you go on dates with or you post on social media with it, it just doesn't stack up. I just want to go back quickly. Like you, you said like in a toxic relationship, you hit each other. But people think like any sort of hitting is like wildly bad always. Yes, it is wildly bad always. Okay. The reason I differentiate it is, let's say relationships are on a spectrum, just like all identities. So like there's the healthy here and then there's abusive here. So like if you're getting in the middle, like you're talking about unhealthy or toxic. So 
maybe like arguing all the time or like screaming at each other, which to me is horrifying. But like for some people, they're used to that or they're nor- that's normal for them. But it's if there's people like, for example, I gave the like hitting each other. The question is, is like, okay, like why is hitting going on? Is it because it's like an extension of like kind of the chaos of like just a toxic relationship or is harm or physical harm, sexual harm or other forms of manipulation? Is it used to um, coerce someone and manipulate them to not be able to be in control of their lives? So that's kind of where I make the distinction of intimate partner violence. One of the things that's reason to, sorry, to differentiate is that couples counseling is a really good option for like toxic relationships, but couples counseling is really harmful for intimate partner violence or coercive control because the abuser is going to very effectively get the, the therapist to take their side and couples counseling. It's great for like when the, maybe the correct answer is somewhere in the middle of like what both people think. But if like one person's being abused, if you like compromise half, they're still being abused. What are some red flags that take it to abusive? It's interesting because it's going to be different in every relationship. One would be like if someone is trying to be controlling all the time. So it's like, does the person feel entitled to know what your whereabouts all the time? Do they feel entitled to know all your thoughts? Are they very self-centered and take everything as an attack? Uh, Because abusive people or people who commit intimate partner violence what they have in common is the belief that they are entitled to control the other person. Like it's pretty equal opportunity to be an abusive person. The only like major difference in identity for statistics in terms of who is abusive is cis men tend to more likely be perpetrators of intimate partner violence. And that's not a biological thing or anything like that. It's just cis men tend to be socialized to be more likely to commit that type of harm. And it's very small percentage of cis men who commit intimate partner violence, but like there's less cis women Mm. and we don't have the data on trans people, unfortunately. When it's taking it from someone is being unkind to everyone Mm -hmm. versus trying to control their partner. Oh, interesting. So like you'll find someone... Like at work, they're really charming and everybody likes them and their friends like them, but then they feel entitled to control their partner. And they're like, you need to have your iPhone on so I know your location 100% of the time. You have to tell me every single expense you spend. Um, You're not allowed to hang out with any people of this gender. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to control what you wear because you are mine. Mm -hmm. And I get to decide how you look to the public. Mm -hmm. And is that sort of different than people who almost view violence as a problem solving tool where like when they get in a fight with a partner, it's a way to like end the fight or, you know, like that, like, I, I think there are some people where they maybe don't have that coercion always in their relationship, but when things will escalate in a, in a conflict, they will turn violent. And that to me feels different than when it's like, it's like almost an, it's an inability to deal with the emotions of the conflict. It's a bad coping tool almost to deal with Mm -hmm. the conflict versus like this ongoing coercion and manipulation of their partner. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So I think you're totally hitting it on the nail. What I would want to add is that oftentimes abusers or intimate partner violence perpetrators will say that they just don't have the emotional coping skills Mm. um, to kind of make an excuse. Um, So like there are definitely people who don't have like the type of emotional coping skills. So I don't know, like for me, like when I've like argued with partners in the past, I'll start crying because I just get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm not trying to silence you. Yeah. (laughs) Like I care about your feelings. I'm just overwhelmed. I'm not. So that's like a lack of emotional coping. But if it's okay, do I start, particularly as a white woman, do I start crying strategically? Am I truly in control of it? Are they aware of what they're doing or are they just out of control? Some are aware of what they're doing and some aren't. And the differentiation is that some are aware and they're like very effectively causing harm in like a very strategic, mindful way. And other people, it's subconscious because they just feel entitled. So it's automatic. So you might be able to ask them questions and they won't be able to kind of delineate a plan. Right. But it's, I guess, adding to like Allison's question, it's of like, okay, like, are they truly out of control? Like, let's say a person gets mad and they like break a bunch of stuff in the apartment. Did they break their stuff and your stuff or just your stuff? Mm-hmm. Like that's something I usually ask people is like, well, when do they lose control? And like then other times you'll see people who have like mental health issues or addiction or alcoholism and mental health diagnoses or struggles and addiction does not cause intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. So you can have someone who's committing intimate partner violence who has a mental health diagnosis or experiences addiction and you can treat that. And they could like have their symptoms managed Mm -hmm. or like the harm of them reduced as much as possible. And they'll still be abusive. Mm -hmm. The difference is that it just makes it more dangerous. In my experience, what you're saying is like, it resonates because I've, I have had to think, okay, this person is just out of, they're just out of control. They just, uh, they just have lost control. But the thing is, have they lost control at a coworker? Have they lost control at a friend? Have they lost control at a, at a family member? No, it's only at me. So then they are in control. Mm-hmm. It's very strategic. Yeah. And how much of it is, is there a correlation between that they grew up seeing that kind of behavior and that that either was something they experienced as a child or they saw between their, you know, caretakers? Yeah. So I don't know the specific data on it. Um, like so specific statistics, but generally the biggest predictor for among cis men, if they are perpetrators of some type of intimate partner violence, a big predictor is growing up in a household where role models were committing intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. At the same time, not all people who are committing intimate partner violence grew up in a household where intimate partner violence was enacted. It's just a big predictor. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting if you're looking at cis women, does include people of like all different gender identities who are not cis as well as a, the, one of the biggest predictor of experiencing intimate partner violence is growing up in a household where they watched someone experience intimate partner violence because mm-hmm. you're going to get that intergenerational transmission of trauma and violence. So how do we break this cycle? Like, you know, 
from school, it seems like this is a really difficult thing to treat. And, and especially like you were even alluding to, like couples therapy is not a proven modality for intimate partner violence. And so what have you found to be sort of effective interventions and are there, you know, like, is, is there this sense that like that someone can be abusive and violent in relationships and then change and, and no longer do those things? So it's possible to change. It's just, it's not probable mm. because it usually doesn't benefit the abusive person to change. Like if you are a super privileged person and you are running on like the code that it's fine to like be the center of the universe and you're entitled to control your partners. If you think that's fine and you don't have any moral qualms about that, most people don't want to change that. It would be like, it'd be the equivalent of like giving up, actively giving up white privilege or something like that. So people can change. And when there is like the type of interventions that tend to be more effective is a form of therapy called battering intervention counseling. And when that's done well, it's only like 1% effective because the people need to want to change and they need to see that their behavior was wrong. So there's a really good book by Lindy Bancroft called uh, Why Does He Do That? Yes. And Lindy Bancroft is a very good battering intervention counselor. I have some notes for his book. Like, for example, like how he defines intimate partner violence. I really wish he'd included state violence. Mm. I wish he'd defined manipulation and weaponizing of historical oppression as a form of intimate partner violence because there's similar rates of experiencing intimate partner violence amongst like different races in the US like black people experience like same rates of intimate partner violence as white people as like chicana people there's higher rates of homicide experienced by black and brown people yeah and the reason is because it's easier to manipulate people so that's the caveat i have to lendy bancroft but at the same time, the reason it's more effective, it's because it's this mix of like one-on-one -on -one therapy and group therapy where the counselor knows that the client is likely to lie and to not give accurate information about what type of abuse is being committed. And a good program will have in an anonymous way or in a safe way, the counselor is checking in with the survivor to get the actual story. Mm -hmm. And it also means that the counselor is able to call the survivor and warn the survivor of like, hey, I think this person is escalating and I'm concerned they're going to cause this type of harm to you. I'm going to warn you mm -hmm. so that you can safety plan. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not a lot of funding for that. So I did victim advocacy in Ohio and now I'm in Seattle and I've never seen a fully funded battering intervention program. Wow. So one is like the programs don't exist and two is you have to actually get people to go. So the, of the very small percentage of intimate partner violence cases that go to court and result in someone being found guilty of harm, and I want to be clear, it's very small. One, because the criminal justice system has never worked at addressing intimate partner violence or sexual violence. That's an abolitionist tangent, which I fully endorse. But the only types of intimate partner violence that are illegal are physical and sexual. And even then, barely. Yeah, barely. And it's, I've been doing this work for close to 10 years and I've never seen criminal justice involvement make anything better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every single case, there's no single exception. Which is tough because you want people to feel like they can, you don't want people to not press charges. But at the same time, it's like, 
yeah, what you're yeah. saying. Usually it's when I'm sitting down with a client, I'm safety planning with them. It's like, okay, like, what do you do to keep yourself safe? What has worked in the past when someone is being violent or being, there's an episode of like higher danger, what keeps you safe? And we'll talk through that. And I'll always ask like, do you feel safe calling the police? And the vast majority of the time they say, absolutely not. Mm. Because not all perpetrators are scared of the police. Mm. Sometimes, particularly if the person that I'm, the survivor I'm working with is black or brown, they're scared of calling the police. One, because they're scared of them as a black or brown person and their partner getting arrested at the same time. Even if their partner is black or brown or white, they're scared of that. They could be like scared of getting blamed for like calling the police on their partner if they're a person of color. Like, oh, you're calling police on black men. Like you're a part of the problem. Like you're not standing up for like the black community mm-hmm. or the whatever community. There's that. And then also if an abuser is in control of their behavior, if the police show up to a scenario, they're in like control and they're like, yeah, this happened. Just things got out of control. Mm-hmm. We just had a lover's quarrel. And then the survivor is having like a fight, flight or freeze response. And they're like, Mm -hmm. and they can't say what happened. So they look like they're the one that did something wrong. So the police are not effectively trained to respond to domestic violence. And I don't think the solution is to train them more. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a part of the problem is if you're doing police reform, you're giving the criminal justice system tokens of like, see, like we worked with this feminist program, so we're allowed Mm -hmm. to keep going. And then it causes ongoing harm. And I say that as someone who used to do reform work with police. And then I learned it's like, this isn't going to fix anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What is um, a safety plan? Yeah. So it's really specific, but it's looking at how to address a situation of harm. So usually the, it used to be called the battering cycle like from like second wave feminists when it was like the battered women's movement. Now we say like gender-based violence movement. That's kind of a fight. Like some people say violence against women movement, gender-based violence. There's a lot to unpack there. But when you're looking at a situation of harm, so like you'll have like an acute, like specific incident of abuse. And that can be any type of abuse, like verbal, emotional, physical, spiritual abuse, financial, like physical, sexual, all of it. And then after you have this type of abuse, you have like, some people call it the honeymoon period. I call it the calm period where it's like, okay, the abuse just happened, but I know that I'm like not going to immediate experience abuse again. Like I might not feel safe, but like it's, it's quiet and they're away. And then you get into the tension period of like, I know the abuse is going to happen again. It's like walking on eggshells. You're just waiting and waiting. So the safety plan is for when you're in the tension phase to be able to reduce the harm as much as possible of when things pop off and the abuse happens. So for some people, that could be a getaway plan. Um, so like, okay, like, let, where should you park your car in the driveway so that your partner can't block you in? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a good idea to have like a bunch of documents just like in a lockbox per- permanently in your car. A lot of my work was with Orthodox Jewish women. So it's like, okay, like having a wig in your car so that you don't have to go outside without a hat or a head mm-hmm. covering if that's something that like for Orthodox women that, that matters, things like that. It also could be, uh, okay, well, your partner's getting escalated. 
is there anything that calms them down? And for some people, it's like, oh, when I go into this room in the house, for whatever reason, they like calm down and get quiet. It's like, okay, it could be, how do you verbally respond to the person? Maybe you should call the neighbors and have a code word so that you can send the kids over to their house. Or sometimes it's like, for example, um, we encourage people not to go into the bathroom because the bathrooms have lots of hard surfaces. So if someone's going to physically harm you, like take your head and knock you on a wall or a counter, bathrooms, it's harder. So you can get more likely to have your face fractured or things like that. Can you explain what spiritual abuse is? Because I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that. Yeah, that's usually when people list the types of abuse, that's the one people leave off. And it's spiritual abuse is utilizing a system of religion or thought or spirituality for the purpose of gaining coercive control over another person. So it happens across all religions and systems of thought. Um, Usually the myth that comes up when I define it is like, oh, like so Muslim people because people assume that Muslim people are more abusive than other people. And I was like, no, being an asshole is equal opportunity. (laughs) But uh, it's either defining ways that the world should be in a way that disenfranchises or manipulates another person. So it's like, well, God said that the man should define, like be the, like the head Mm -hmm. of the household. So like you're going against God to do this. Mm -hmm. Or... It could even be particularly working in Seattle, like you're experiencing, I'm experiencing a lot of people who aren't religious at all, but it's different systems of thought. So like someone who's like super leftist quotes a lot of feminism and things like that. And then they're like manipulating feminist thought of like, well, you're like causing me like so much harm and you're actually the one who's being abusive. And so it's like manipulating a set of values. So it doesn't just have to be religion you have bad karma because you're doing Mm -hmm. this or you're not being a good enough feminist or things like that. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. And I feel like people continue to be so perplexed as to why someone wouldn't leave immediately at the first sign of abuse or violence. Can you sort of speak to why there's that misunderstanding and why it is so much more complex and difficult than, than you would think if you haven't been there yourself? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of answers to that. One, just to say, if your friend comes to you and says like, hey, I think this is going on or starts hinting at that. Don't ask, why don't you just leave? Don't do that. It's really, really harmful. And also it's not always safe to leave because the time that if we're talking about intimate partner violence, homicide, the time that is most dangerous for a person is when they are leaving the abusive relationship. And that's not necessarily when they are actually leaving. It's when the perpetrator knows they're going to leave. Because if intimate partner violence is wanting to control another person, then the ultimate loss of control is the person leaving and not being in your control. And that's when abuse escalates. Yeah. So it's just bad, bad idea to say like, oh, you should leave right now because like they might get killed. And also like there's all these ways that entangle people together. So like, let's say you're in a lease together. How do you leave? You could try to move out, but your perp- the perpetrator will stay in there in the apartment and purposely not pay the rent, even though you're still on the lease. And like get you an eviction purposefully if you leave. Or hold on to your security deposit. 
Yep. Hold on to your security deposit. Make it so you fi- financially can't go anywhere. So it's just not an option. So there's all these, it's like, if you're married, how are you going to leave? Like, if you take the kids with you, will your perp- will the perpetrator call the cops on you and say, they yeah. kidnapped my kids? Will you lose your entire community? So like, I'm queer. So like, if someone like in our friend group, if someone like ended up being abusive and they left their partner, I think my friend group would just believe the person who experienced harm. Like from experience, I know that to be true because I've seen an abusive person get cut out of my friend group before. But usually people are like, I don't want to take sides and I we don't really know what happened. And then like you just lose your whole friend group on top of losing this relationship. Mm-hmm. So there's all these like systems of support or financial coercion that is up in the air. And then the most important one is that this person who's causing harm didn't just walk up to this person on the first date and punch them in the face or call them like a bitch or like a slur. This person dated them and lulled them into security and then slowly started being incrementally more controlling. So if a relationship could have the potential to be healthy and just is going through a tough time and someone's not abusive, therefore thought's going to be like, okay, like how do we fix this problem? How do I be part of the solution? What part of this is my fault? How am I contributing to this lack of misunderstanding or not making a safe place to communicate? So you're going to work more with the person. And we don't take a class to be like, oh, I'm experiencing intimate partner violence or what is happening here is manipulation versus just them having a tough time or going through a tough period. So you don't know when you're in it. And also you love the person. So like they might sincerely be going through a hard time. They might really sincerely have trauma. They might be experiencing addiction. They might be homeless if you leave them. And so if you leave, this is someone that you care about. It might be like the other parent of your children. It might be someone who you've been with for so long and you really care about and you have these really happy memories. You never know, like, if there's no way to like prevent you from experiencing it. So like you can like be have safety planning and stuff, but like ending up dating an abusive person can happen to everyone. I think that's probably the major reason people ask that question because they want to think that they're different. They want to think that this couldn't happen to them. And that would be great because that would be like really safe. Mm -hmm. Like it's like the just world hypothesis of like, Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So therefore, the cops are great and we'll just call the cops and Mm -hmm. all the bad people will go to jail and we're great and we'll be out here. Mm -hmm. And only abuse will happen to like people who like that have like a mark on their forehead. Mm -hmm. So then it can't happen to me. And so I think it's a safety thing. But Mm -hmm. it's also like we live in a rape culture. Like we're all gaslit to think that if sexual harm happens, it's the person's fault or that the person's false reporting Mm. or things like that. Like uh, the laws that we have to address sexual harm in the U.S. are based on property damage law from England. It's like old English property damage laws. Like, okay, like your wife has been sexually assaulted. Let's restore this scenario in the way that like we would restore it if your horse got stolen, where we define the damaged person as like the person's husband. Mm. So like at least in the US colonial carceral criminal justice or system, like we're set up to think about it that way. I think also there's a lot of personal shame that you let this 
happen to yourself. I mean, I've been in one relationship that was physically violent and one that was emotionally and verbally abusive and and coercive control. And I think when I got out of the second one, I, a lot of what I would say is like, why does this happen to me? What about me invites this? Do I have some sort of vibe that I give off that when an abuser meets me, they say, ah, this one. And I still think that way. I'm not perfect. I still think that way. I still wonder. I still think that way. Yeah. I do this for a living. I wonder if there, if it's because I grew up in an addict home. So I have some sort of damage that these people can see. Why are they sniffing me out? And then it's like, what's wrong with me, basically? Yeah. Yeah. And I still feel that way. I still feel that way. And like the intimate partner violence I experienced, it was a teenager. And that's like more than a decade ago. Mm -hmm. So it's, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry that happened. It's, I think it's important to talk about because when you get groups of survivors together, you realize it's like, we all feel ashamed for like the same Mm -hmm. thing. And it's like, oh, well, if all of us feel identical and we're all like experiencing the same type of harm, it couldn't possibly be our fault. It has to be like a societal issue, (sighs) particularly because we know that if we go back in time, it wasn't always like this. Yeah. Like um, I'm really interested in Native and Indigenous feminisms, specifically Sarah Deer. And Sarah Deer talks about in her research, not all Native societies are the same because it's like thousands of tribes in the U.S., but looking at Indigenous rape law, how you can tell like how intimate partner violence and sexual assault was handled was that it was really rare and that when it happened, it was responded to immediately. Mm. So like the quote from her book of, it's called The Beginning and End of Rape, like Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America. And I don't remember the tribe that she was from. She talks about in her tribal law, it was written, translated as what she say, it will be law. And the she is the survivor. Wow. So it's, we believe her, what needs to be done to address the harm will be done. Wow. Mm. And then we have all of these accounts of like colonists going to native tribes and they're just in their diaries, like shockingly writing like, yeah, like we had like a battle and they like captured a bunch of people from us. And then we got them back and like none of them were assaulted. Isn't that weird? Oh, my God. And they're because like to like Western, like colonial people, like war is synonymous with rape. Yeah. It's an it's a act of war. Like, that's why you have things like genocidal rape and things like that. Like, but they're like so shocked. So we know that it didn't have to be like this. It didn't have to be blaming someone for having something bad happen to them instead of blaming society of like, okay, like why when something bad happens to someone in childhood or whatever, why is it possible for abusive people to seek someone who's vulnerable to being isolated out? Yeah. Like, why is that? But I understand, like, the root of what you're saying, too, is, like, on the individual level of, like, why me? What's going on? Yeah. And it's not a you deserve it. Not you specifically, like, all of us. The royal you. It's, like, how to, like, reconnect and be less vulnerable to harm. Not because if I, like, I'll keep experiencing harm or because I deserve it, but because someone deserves to not be isolated from community. Someone deserves to not hear something abusive and then immediately believe it. Yeah. Everybody deserves to hear something shitty said to them and be like, 
yeah, no, you're talking out of your ass. Go away. <laughs> or the safe version. Like, I don't always encourage people to say you're talking out of your ass. Go yeah. away. Because you might get beat up. But yeah. <laughs> the equip- the safe equivalent of that. Yeah. Because it does seem that, like, unfortunately, people tend to get re-victimized. And so is it helpful for people to know you maybe are more vulnerable to this? And so here's what we can do to prevent it from happening again with a, in a way that doesn't blame them for the fact that they are more vulnerable to it? Yes. So it's a controversial question because I think a lot of people ask that question and then how they go about addressing it is exactly what you said, Allison. They like victim blame and they don't even know that they're victim blaming. And it's hard because survivors, we are, we have a tendency to victim blame because Mm -hmm. it gives us control. It's really, it's really comforting to victim blame yourself. I know like Stephanie Beatrice, she did a movie. Yes. The light of the moon. Yeah. And I analyzed that it was, first of all, watch that movie because Stephanie Beatrice is a bicon, but it did an amazing job of her, the character in the movie, she's talking about experiencing stranger sexual assault. So she's sexually assaulted by a stranger walking home. And it gives her comfort to blame herself. And she's getting mad at people for Blake's like, stop saying it's not my fault. So it's complicated. But I think in an environment that is trauma informed, and by that, I mean, understands that trauma affects the way you view things and the way you respond to things in ways that to other people aren't always explainable or make logical sense. But I think it is helpful to help people understand that they are vulnerable because it means that it's not just you. It's that we live in a society that like, if you are trans, you are more likely to be sexually assaulted or to experience intimate partner violence. Because one is if someone is trans and they're like, have the trans community, they probably realize that because they look around and like most of their friends have been assaulted. And if you didn't know that, I'm sorry, I just ruined your day. But you look around and you see that. So then you're able to say like, okay, like, am I what's wrong? Or is it the transphobia? Or is it the biphobia? Like 75% of bi people, regardless of their, like uh, 75% of bi cis women will experience sexual assault in their lives as compared to 30% of cis lesbians and straight women. Yep. I knew that. So it's like way higher. And like if you are bi and you're trans, regardless of any gender identity, it's way higher to experience intimate partner violence and sexual assault because you're more vulnerable. So I think it's like where we trouble into victim blaming is like, oh, so you need to make yourself less vulnerable to be deserving of not experiencing abuse. Mm -hmm. That's where, that's the danger zone. Every single like survivor that I've talked to, whether it was like, my first job was working on a rape crisis hotline. Concurrently, like I worked in an LGBT center at my undergrad where like, like people came in and I just talked to them if they'd experienced sexual assault. And then I had like back-to-back full-time jobs as a survivor advocate. Every person I spoke to said the same thing of like, is this me? Why are they doing this? Like, am I the one being abusive? Or like, did I cause it? And usually what I say is like asking questions of like, did you feel in control when you riled them up? Or was it a very expected response? So like they did an act to get you to respond in a way where if they did harm, they would be able to excuse it. Mm-hmm. 
and validates them feeling like a victim, validates them being like, see, I'm the victim. Yeah. And some people really do think they're the victim because like if you're a perpetrator and you think that the basic default of what is correct in a relationship is like, I'm allowed to be in control. It needs to be my way all the time. Yeah. Then they might think they're the victim or they just might like actively be like, oh, I know if I do this, then then I'll be able to do this. I would also say a big red flag to me was in couples counseling. If you don't feel like you can say anything to the counselor. Yeah. If you don't feel like you can talk about anything in front of them, if you don't feel like you can say anything to the counselor, I had to go and talk to the counselor privately, like had to email and be like, I need to talk to you alone because I wouldn't say anything. And then if I did say something in couples counseling, we would hang up and I would be screamed at. Yeah. It would be more dangerous, which is why couples counseling is not a good idea for intimate partner violence. Because if you say stuff and are honest, you get punished for it. Right. So I guess it would be like in like the red flags to look for is like, how do you and your partner make decisions? Is it actually a decision or are they in total control or are they just like pretending to be a baby and you have to make all the decisions and then they're being controlling by being a drain and not being any help at all. And you're isolated because you're so overwhelmed. Like, are you able to have privacy? Um, Are you able to like bring up problems and not be punished? Are you allowed to talk to the couple's therapist on your own? Or do you get like interrogated after? Mm -hmm. Like, what did you tell them? Mm -hmm. And like, I don't think if you're in couples counseling, it's always necessary to like immediately end couples counseling. If the person knows what they're doing, with intimate partner violence. So like, for example, I, there's a YouTuber that I like a lot, psychology in Seattle, Dr. Kirk Honda, and he'll post videos like reacting to like 90 day fiance and things like that, which I find fascinating. But he talked about like, when you are a therapist, a couple's therapist, and you find out that the couple you're counseling intimate partner violence is going on, how he would handle it. And so how you handle it is that is like immediately taking in private the survivor's side and then talking to them on the side of like, hey, like, do you feel safe? What is a good idea? Because immediately ending therapy might make things more dangerous for them, Mm -hmm. but also continuing to do therapy in the way that like you're taught in school to do couples counseling might put the person in danger more. So I think it's one, being careful to make that call because just because you think someone is the survivor you're not trained to determine who's the survivor. And if you take the wrong person's side, that person could say, I don't like this counselor anymore. Pick a new one. Yeah. Yeah. They like will shop around for a therapist that picks their side. Will validate them. Yeah. And it's just really complicated, which is why I like encourage people to get, try to reach out to an advocate. And I know that can be really hard because so where I live, like there's a ton of people and there's more services available than most counties in the country for survivors, but we're flooded. So we're all underpaid. And that's not the team that you're working on's fault. Like my boss at the nonprofit I worked at, I loved her. She's amazing. It's on the higher level, like the, the government decides how much advocates get paid and you don't get paid very well. Um, There's not enough of us. So you have so many clients and you don't have the capacity to do all the help you need. But if you are able to 
connect with an advocate you feel comfortable with, being able to safety plan is really important. So like, okay, like you are in couples counseling, what's actually going on? Tell me how you feel. And I, a good advocate, they will never talk to the abuser ever. I, I don't even know like most of like the clients like I work with, I don't know their abusers names mm. unless they want me to. But it's someone who's there for you to help you strategically go through and be like, mm. these, these factors are here that make me concerned that this person is going to harm you or you're saying that you're scared they're going to kill you. Like, let's react to that in a safe manner. Let's like maybe find shelter, start making a plan to get a divorce. Like mm-hmm. if that's what you need. Oh, like, oh, your children are young and you know that you need to stay married until they turn 18. Like, mm-hmm. let's make a plan for that. So just reaching out to someone um, who knows what they're doing. And that doesn't need to be someone in a nonprofit because again, like nonprofits can be an extension of the criminal justice system, depending. Or there's another great book I recommend called Arrested Justice. It's by Beth Ritchie. She's an amazing Black abolition feminist. And she talks about defining gender-based harm in a Black feminist way that centers the knowledge of Black activists to like systematically look through harm that's going on in different communities and being able to like, as a community come together and like hold people accountable in the ways that are possible. Oh, this has been so helpful and enlightening. And um, now I have to do my awkward part where I ask if you want to play a very silly game show. Yes. I really <laughs> want to play a game show. <laughs> Just to say, um, I think I, I'm not a very religious person and I don't like evangelism because I think it's colonization. But the only forms of evangelism that I think are ethical is telling everyone I know about this podcast. <laughs> Every new queer person I meet is like, do you listen to this podcast? And I've gotten like 20 people I've met like through grad school to listen to this podcast. Oh my God. So Thank I love you. this. Your podcast is the reason Wednesday is my favorite day of the week. And it's oh been like, God. like 2016. Wow. You're a one person PR machine and we appreciate it. This is it. amazing. That's so lovely. <laughs> I'm like us, little, little old us. <laughs> So I definitely don't need to explain hypotheticals for you, but I will explain it in case we have a first-time listener. Hypotheticals is a game show where I give both of you um, some hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation. Um, And sometimes I pick a a winner, and sometimes I don't. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) But our first game is America's favorite game show, Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of seven years has always wanted to be famous more than anything. They tell you they got cast on a new reality competition show, but they don't tell you that part of the show is trying to find a romantic partner to help you compete in various challenges. Oh my God. They end up getting sent home during the first week after one makeout session and subsequent rejection, but they do get 100,000 new followers for throwing a fit about it on TV. Would you stay with this cheater? There's no photos of me on their Instagram. Like people don't know that they're taken. Well, this happens all the time. People go on these They're shows. Doing an SK. Yeah. 
Mm. I have to say, when I watched Love is Blind the whole time I was watching it, I was like, wow, SK is like the most normal, nice person I've ever seen on a show like this. And then for him to be the absolute worst made me question everything about reality. It goes to show you don't always know who's going to be abusive or shitty. It wow. really does. But um, my immediate reaction, but I know you're going to M. Night Shyamalan on me, is to but absolutely not. Because we're monogamous, right? Yes. Okay. Where did I think they were? You knew they were on a reality game show, but you thought it was a competition series. You didn't know it had a romantic element to it. Okay, I don't like that. I'm going to go. No. They have 100,000 followers now, They made me a fool. (laughs) They made me a fool on TV. A lot of people who suck have 100,000 followers. That's true. Yeah. But do they have 200,000 like me? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) But do they have a cool, like, mental health podcast? No. So no. Why would they just not? Why wouldn't they tell me? Well, because they didn't think you'd prove. I'm surprised that neither of you are bumping on the fact that their main goal always has been to be famous, which feels problematic. Yeah, whose goal isn't that? All right. I'm not a fan of that, but I think I'm just, I've been so therapized that I'm just like, yeah, like, like I'd need to know more to like know if I disagreed with it because words mean different things to every person. Wow. <laughs> All goals are valid. Like you just have to like see if it's ethical. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I would never be on a reality show. It'd be like, she keeps talking about her problems. Yeah. <laughs> She's communicating directly with The Bachelor. What is this? <laughs> She's regulating her emotions. We got to get rid of her. <laughs> Yeah. That's why you didn't get cast on The Bachelor, right, Allison? Well, a few years ago, I could have done it, but not not now. Well, not now. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we're all leaving. I think yeah, that makes definitely. sense. Okay, but now we have a would you forgive this liar? Oh, boy, okay. You have a mentor at work who always talks about the wisdom that comes with age, which makes sense because they are 20 years older than you. Uh-oh. One day, though, they get written up in a news article that reveals they're actually only four years older than you and, and have been faking their age so you would be more comfortable looking up to them. Would you forgive this liar? When they say like so much wisdom with age, are they doing it in a way where like they're sharing information that's really helpful to you? Or are they doing it in a, well, you're wrong because I'm older? Mm. No, they've been a wonderful mentor. They've been like very helpful, but like, they just sort of figured if they knew, if you thought they were like basically your your peer, you wouldn't take them seriously. And they look older. And so they lied to you and said they were 20 years older than you. I guess my follow up question is like, what gender and race are they? <laughs> it, it, it changes the sure. answer. Uh, they're a white man. Ah! Um, a, cis, a cis man? Uh, yes. Or a trans? Okay. Yes. Probably not. Because I could understand like, like I look very young. Um, so like I get called honey all the time. And like my first day of like my first job out of college, my coworker, who's a wonderful friend right now. So yeah, I'm sorry for telling the story. On our first day of work, she was like, they hire 16 year olds. <laughs> and she was like, for a while, wouldn't listen to what I right. said and was like, oh, honey. And it's like, like trying to explain mm-hmm. things to me. And I'm just like, oh, so I could understand needing to pretend to be older. But like, if you're a cis white man should be fine no like like you might have other experiences of like oppression going on but like yeah you can hide them well enough for people to take you seriously (laughs) like you might also be poor but like you can hide that at work you can pretend that's not a thing and maybe it's like the yeah that meme it's like 
it's like, oh, like you seem so old for your age. It's like, thanks. It was the trauma. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. If they're lying and specifically saying I'm 20 years older, then no, I guess still no, because you could just have this conversation about like, oh, like I've had these experiences that have like, I might be four years older than, and I know this. So you would not, you would not keep them as a mentor? I think I would do an AA and like take what I want, leave what I don't, but keep at a arm's length because I'm not wealthy enough to quit my job or project a mentor. <laughs> like <laughs> unnecessary lying. Allison, who was right? I think that what we do in this scenario is you pretend that you forgive them so that you can maintain all of their great mentorship and knowledge, but in your heart, you hold on to it and let it fester. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's good, healthy that's advice. very healthy. Yeah. That's why my skin is good. Holding grudges <laughs> makes your skin nice. <sighs> okay. Well, that's why I'm attractive. Of course. It's all the grudges. <laughs> okay, our final game. Oldie but a goodie. Is this a date? Yes. You're at a work conference and the keynote speaker is unbelievably boring and vaguely anti-Semitic. <gasps> You let out a groan at something he says, and the random person next to you hears this and whispers, do you want to sneak out of here and get some coffee instead? Is this a date? I need so much more information. You don't know them at all. You just happen to be sitting next to them during this boring and vaguely anti-Semitic conference keynote speaker. I've done this before, (laughs) so (laughs) I've been like, the person's shitty. Let's just leave. Like... Wow. (laughs) To a total stranger? Yeah. And did you date them after? One time, yes. And the other time, no. (laughs) Pretty Um, good (laughs) Yeah. So if Agnes is listening, yes, that was you. (laughs) I ended up dating. Uh, I don't know. What do we talk about after? No, you can't. This is the moment where you have to determine if it's a date. Are I attracted to them? Yeah. Where's this genders that each other likes? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a date. Was there like any touching? Like in like the, hey, do you want to just go? Like, was there like a hand touch or like, what was the body language? It was a lean over, but no touch. Then I would say I would proceed out if it was not a date, but I'm open to changing my mind later. But I don't want to assume it's a date. I don't know. At the same time, me dating, it looks the same. Like, (laughs) like, it's just because like, you're just like talk info dumping about what you're excited about. And then you're like, when do you know if it's a date? If you ask, like, honestly, for me <laughs> like, too, I'll say, I'll, I'll ask straight up. Like, is this a date? My favorite is when you hang out, you ask someone to hang out and then you purposely don't say it's a date. And then if you have fun afterwards, you text them and ask if it was yes, a date I've done that. as a way of flirting. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. And then if it sucked or if like no vibes, but just like wonderful friend love, but maybe not sexual or romantic, just don't ask if it's a date. Yeah. This is very good advice. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So I'm going to say, no, it's not a date. Well, guess what? It was a date. And they actually buy you coffee and seven muffins. Wow. Oh, that's so nice. I love to bond over anti-Semitism. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh my gosh. Well, you have been such a delightful guest. We are so thankful that you joined us today. And where can people find you and all the work that you're doing or any organizations you want to plug? So organization I want to plug is everyone should Google Mariam Kaba and read what she's written. Uh, She wrote a wonderful transformative justice book called We Do This Till We Free Us. And it's about 
going about gender-based violence activism in a Black feminist, abolitionist way. And it's such a good book if you want to get into activism and want to do it in a way where you don't isolate yourself and burn out really quickly. Yeah, but otherwise, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Belladonna Bisexual, like all one word. And I right now I'm competing in a modeling competition to help pay for grad school. So if you go to my Instagram and you want to vote for me for free, feel free to or check out my writing on turfs. You can go to my Instagram. Amazing. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about small business ideas. X, 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 baby. Baby. We are missing Melissa for this segment because in the middle of recording, Melissa's power went out, her internet went out, kind of her cell phone coverage. It's been a disaster. I'll be honest. Absolutely. <laughs> it's funny because she didn't want to be a part of this topics anyway, because we're talking about small business ideas and she's like, I'm not giving any of mine away for free. So in, in yeah. a way, it kind of worked out for all the topics for her to be unable to join i guess this works although i really did want to hear her ideas i know i did too yeah but she wasn't going to share them anyway so what could you do yeah um what is your small business idea okay so sometimes i think about like what kind of of business would i have if i had a little business (laughs) my (laughs) and my goal if i had if i was like such a huge influencer that I could just start a business, you know, when you uh-huh. get to that level, what I would start is cozy, comfy clothes. And it's really like f- flattering, classy clothes for people with sensory problems. Oh, say more about it. Like what specifically? <laughs> so like all the fabrics would be really soft. And there wouldn't be anything that would be too tight on your body, but it would be like, it would be like fancier than athleisure because athleisure already exists where it's comfy. This could be like fancy, comfy, cozy clothes that, you know, no like hardware on the clothes that could irritate you. Mm. No tags, just like really comfy, cozy. (laughs) Okay. I like that. I think, I think a clothing line for people with sensory issues is a good idea. Thank you. I've I've soft pitched it on Twitter, but I've yet to get millions of dollars of investment, which I think is really weird. What did people say when you soft pitched it? They were into it, but no one contributed funds. And, and <laughs> did no, well, you didn't post to go fund me or anything. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, but that I feel like that would be a really fun thing to do. Like, and obviously versions of this exist already, but that would be like my passion project would be to create like cl- like fancy clothes for people with sensory problems. Okay, I really like that. Would you try to get some of the clothes to like mirror like it, like would you would they look or like a specific way or would you try to be like, oh, these look like leather pants, but they're not or like, ooh, these look like a blouse, but they're that's what you do. It'd be a trick like the pants. It would look like real pants. It wouldn't look like you were wearing leggings. leggings. Oh. It would. Yeah, like but they'd be like very convincing. And then the shirts would be nice. But like, you know, a lot of like button down shirts are kind of very like um starchy. they're not soft yeah, yeah they're starchy and they're not soft so this would all be really soft wow look i'm sure versions of this exist but it would also be like affordable somehow in my magical thinking of 
starting this small business. That would actually be a huge fashion empire. I love it. What would you call it? <laughs> oh, comfy, cozy clothes. Yeah. <laughs> just a little thing just that uh, it says CCC, comfy, cozy yeah. clothes, and it's in the mall. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love that. <laughs> That's interesting. Do you have any? I mean, no one wants my Uber for dogs idea. Which is that someone just brings you your pet. That, yeah. That when you, wherever you are, if you feel like you miss your pet, someone will go get it and bring it to you. <laughs> well, if you're just like on vacation and you're like, oh, I really wish I had brought my dog. I miss my dog. They'll bring the dog right to you. I like that. So Phantom. Yeah. Like when I shower the dogs, Sugar loves something called burrito time, which is when I, I wrap her in a towel so she can dry and then she lays there for hours as she dries. Okay. The Phantom course. has no interest in burrito time. Okay. And then he's like sopping wet. So I try desperately to dry him, but he won't dry. And so I would really like like some sort of bathrobe for dogs. Yes. That he could wear when he's still Absorbent. wet from his Absorbent. bath. Uh-huh. But he can still, you know, go around and do all sorts of stuff, still be himself, not be, you know, trapped under burrito time, but have a bathrobe. So I, I want to make dog bathrobes. <laughs> okay. Do you like Shark Tank? Do you watch anything like that? I only watch Shark Tank when I'm on vacation with my parents. Okay. So I have seen it, but it's not something I put on by myself. Do you ever feel like, okay, I feel like I watch it and I go, well, that's a that's not a good evaluation. I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. I watch it. Also, like, I'm sort of baffled sometimes by, and I will say, here's my hot take of the episode. It, they can be extremely racist and sexist on that show. If someone comes in and like, I remember one time these women came, black women came in and they had lipsticks and they were like, these are lipsticks that are bright enough to show up on black women. And everyone was like, that's the dumbest fucking idea. <gasps> I know. And like, they didn't get anything. And everyone was like ro roasting them. And I was like, well, I immediately went and bought a lipstick. But from right. them, because they had a blue that was beautiful. But I was like, what on, or, like, it's. Just, I was like, oh, because they don't understand black women. And they also don't understand, like, sometimes they'll be like, who is this for? And I'm like, who is it for? It's for like, you know, this group or this group or whatever. And I think sometimes people see small businesses or see ideas and they're like, oh, if it's not for me, then it's not for anyone. I remember people right. were like, remember that thing where there was that thing that could help you put socks on and everyone was like, oh, they're so lazy. And then all these disabled people were like, actually, this is like a lifesaver for me. Totally. Yeah. Do you think that a good small business is it's appealing to everybody or you really have a niche that like that covets you? It's it, it could be either one. It could be either yeah. one. You know, one thing I find interesting on um, Shark Tank is that sometimes uh, someone will have this idea and it'll be like something for putting, you know, stickers on shoes or whatever. And like, it's like, okay, that's kind of cute. I don't know. And then like Mark Cuban, who I've met, will say, oh, you know, I, I'm a, I own the Mavs and I, I would I bet people would put their favorite sports team on there. So like, it's not even what the person who pitched it thought it would be for. Mm, mm -hmm. And then he's like, what if we made all these different sports teams and then people would want to just because people love merch with their sports team. Why don't we put that? And then I'm always like, ah, he's done it again. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also so anti-capitalist. 
Like, I don't, it's so funny that, like, I'm so anti-capitalist and I watch Shark Tank and I'm so anti-cop and I'm just watching true crime all day. Yeah. I'm it's, a hypocrite. Well, we're all, we're all hypocrites. We're all complex. I know. And operating under quite a, quite a bit of cognitive dissonance at all times. <laughs> I know. I think any idea I could think of probably already exists. Well, here's this. If you could open a small store in a town, what kind of store would you want it to be? I would open a candy store. A queer bookstore. You know what is funny is that my mom did our genealogy or like someone, she she talked to a relative, whatever, and they did this huge genealogy thing for her side of the family. And it turned out that like an ancient ancestor of mine, long, 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 long time ago in Russia was a chocolatier, ran a chocolate shop. <gasps> yeah. Wow. So like our like first relative that we found like long, 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 long time ago, whatever. I mean, great, 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 great grandpa, past, past, past. They, they were like, what was his job in the town? And he was like a candy man. Doesn't that make total sense? Not really. What do you mean? Of course, it's like some goofy job. Like no one was a doctor. <laughs> Candy's important. I would want to have like, like kind of like a recreate like a 1950s malt shop where like yes! there's ice cream. There's ice cream, but then there's also really good candy. Yes. And then like places for people to sit and hang out and like um, in, a, in a fantasy of a post-COVID world. And like, yeah. And then and then the people that work there wear like kind of like retro little Love uniforms it. with the little paper hat. OK, have I got something for you? OK, it's Cocoa and Candy is a store in Studio City. And it's a candy shop and it's all like vintage candies oh. and like old. It's got new stuff, too, but it's like stuff from other countries, old candies they don't sell anymore. Like, wow. OK, I don't mean to show for this store, but I've been a few times and it's so good. I mean, they had stuff that like my family members were like, oh, my God, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen this since the 50s or whatever. And I got to get a bunch of candy from like England and from also like I got a bunch of Asian. So like Chinese, Japanese, like Korean candies, like it was you got to go. It's so great. I have to go. Yeah, I think what we should do is we should create my malt shop candy store with your queer bookstore next to it. And so people can go buy the books, come read them at the candy. Absolutely. Create a little community. Yeah. And are your people on roller skates? No. Okay. Because that's kind of ableist and difficult. Right. How would they, right. How would you hire different people? Yeah. Okay. Your store is the fifties. And then they, and then they go into my store and my store is the seventies. I love this. Yes. We should do this. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's fun. <laughs> Wait, what do we call these stores? Your store's um, candy. Candy and ice cream. And a malt, like a malt shop. And books. Sweetie. <laughs> Sweetie pie. But there's no pie. So Sweet, Sweets. Sweets and reeds. Sweet. Good sweets and reeds. Good. Good sweets, great reeds. <laughs> <laughs> Someone is going to write in with so much of a better idea than what we just so, came yeah, up with. So yeah, please write in with a better idea. There's an obvious <laughs> pun that we are missing so hard right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Some people have been doing it. They've been so nice and fun and it really helps the show a lot. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, what's the latest one? Let me see. From Mills318, love the new Reddit mini 
And then it goes dot, dot, dot. So I'm not sure. But then they said, so excited to know that Gabe and I are both Gaylers and would love to have him school Allison on all the Gaylor tea. Yes. <laughs> I like this one. I've, I, it just got better. I've been a fan for years. I have seen y'all on YouTube and now listen to you weekly. Having Elena on, oh, Elena Joy as next level. I had to take a second look at the title for today's episode because it's just so great. If I didn't know I was queer before this episode, I definitely would have realized it after hearing it. What an epic episode. Love, love, love. L-O-V-E this. Thank you for making content. Oh, well, thank you all for listening. And uh, what do we rate this wild episode? Where I just want to say in the middle of, I had to take over all the technical stuff and sign into our record. I I did like a lot Allison, of impressive stuff for me. It's so, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough. Allison took over this recording when Melissa, I mean, you might think it was me, but it was not. It was Allison the whole time. So thank you Pretty so much. Cool. I will rate it 99 out of 97. Allison produces the show. One time for 15 minutes of one episode. <laughs> You're a producer now, baby. Wow, wow. And I will rate it 100 out of 80. Believe in yourself. And you can also learn how to log into someone else's Gmail. <laughs> I, I also want to say sincerely, thank you to Haley Yoakum for being our guest. Yes. That was a sincerely incredible discussion and um, meant a lot to me. Well, I think it was it was one of the most valuable ones we've had. And so we are so grateful. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Yeah.